Well, the, the fight or flight response, the fight or flight response is a, is a term used to describe how people or animals respond to dangerous situations, how they respond to fear. Some people, they fight, they confront the danger. Others choose the, the flight option, they choose to, to flee instead of fighting. I don't know if any of you have ever watched one of those YouTube videos of someone jumping out and scaring someone else. Uh, I, I love those videos. I try to recreate those videos as often as possible at home with Delane. And she loves it. Um, but if you have watched those videos, what normally happens when someone jumps out and seeks to scare someone else is the person being scared screams, they, they jump backwards, or they run away. But if you've watched enough of those videos, as I clearly have, you realize or you, you find out that not every single person reacts that way. Some people, when someone jumps out and tries to scare them, instead of running away, their instinct is to, to punch the person. Uh, well, that's kind of the, the fight or flight response in a, in a nutshell. But we know that, that fear does not just show up for us in moments of danger. Many of us fear things that are, are not so dangerous. Maybe spiders or, or bugs, a dark room, small spaces, a roller coaster. Well, when faced with these fears, probably the advice that people most often give is that you just have to, to face your fears. Now, the idea is that if you, you cannot keep avoiding your fears, you cannot keep fleeing from your fears if you're ever going to conquer your fears or overcome them. So you have to decide whether to, to ride that roller coaster or step on that spider or enter that dark room. Now, some people do this. Other people have no desire to do this. They, they don't see any need to. And my point is, is not to make a, a judgment about which response is, is best. But my, my point is that people react differently to fear. And also, fear confronts you with a, a choice. It does confront you with a choice. Will you face your fears or will you flee from them? Well, turn with me to Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be in, in verses 22 through 39 this afternoon. And fear, like I said earlier, is actually a pretty big theme of our passage today. Not, not fear of the dark or of spiders, but a fear of the Lord. And like people have different reactions to the fears they face, whatever those might be, we see people reacting differently in different ways to their fear of Jesus. For some, their fear leads to faith, or it is a response of faith. It is a holy fear of the Lord. But for others, it causes them to oppose Jesus and, and flee from Jesus. But what I, what I want you to see is that these different reactions actually come because people have different fears. Some... Some in our text have a good and a right fear of the Lord. On the other hand, some have a, a wrong fear. But one writer put it this way, where a right fear or a proper fear falls down in worship, leaning toward God in love, a, a wrong fear dreads, opposes, and, and retreats from God. This is the fear which generates the doubt 
which rationalizes unbelief. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase from the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, the type of fear that is the beginning of wisdom is that fear that falls down in worship, leaning toward God in love. Uh, it's a little bit of what we, we see the Israelites doing in that text that, that Shilpa read. They, they seem to retreat from the Lord, but really they're recognizing, they're recognizing their sin in the presence of a holy God. That's a much different type of fear than being scared of the spider or of the dark. It is instead a deep awe of God, a recognition of his glory and his majesty, his power, his perfection. Now, apart from, from God's saving work, people do not have this type of fear of God. Our, our sinful nature does not worship God. You see in the Garden of Eden, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, what is it that they want to do? They want to get away from the Lord. They want to flee from the Lord. In our, in our sinful nature, we dread God. We oppose God. We retreat from him. God must reveal himself to us for us to fear rightly. He must give us a proper fear that stands in awe of him as opposed to a fear that leads us to flee from him. And so the question you should be asking from this, this text, the question I would encourage you to ask as, as we go through Luke, is do I have a right fear of the Lord? Do I dread God? Or do I, I love him? Do I desire to draw near to God or flee from him? So I, I don't really have sermon points for you to consider this morning. We're simply going to walk through a couple of different true stories from Jesus' life on earth, a couple of true stories of his ministry to try to understand them better and apply to them and, and really centered on this theme of fear that we see in the passage. Uh, so the main idea is that you should fear or you should stand amazed or in, or in awe of the one who has all authority. Uh, so first, uh, look with me, starting in, in Luke 8, 22, we're going to look at Jesus calming the sea. So starting in verse 22. One day, he and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being, they were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. So this... This story opens up with Jesus and the disciples getting in a boat, heading across the lake. This would have been the Sea of Galilee, which is a very large lake. The Sea of Galilee, I think even today, has a reputation for sudden, strong, and violent storms, like the one Jesus and his disciples experience here. And notice, as, as they get into the boat, it is Jesus' idea that they sail to the other side of the sea. Uh, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when they were out on the sea. He was in full control of this situation. This storm did not take him by surprise, even though he was sleeping when it came about. But he placed the disciples in this situation on purpose in order to, to demonstrate his power, in order to, to reveal himself to his disciples. And so as they're, they're sailing across the sea, uh, Jesus goes to sleep. 
again, we, we see a demonstration here of Jesus' humanity. And just like you and I, Jesus needed to sleep. During his time on earth in his human nature, he got tired. He needed to rest. Jesus was, and he is, and he will forever now be fully human. But as we'll, we'll see in, in the text, and really we'll uncover throughout this text, that's not the end of the story because Jesus is also fully God. This same man who was there resting and taking a nap is the same man who calmed the storm. When Jesus came and took on flesh, God the Son, that existed from all eternity, who has all power and authority, took on human flesh. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So as, as Jesus is resting, as, as he falls asleep in this boat, this, the storm comes up. The strong and violent storm descends on the lake. I've always wondered how Jesus was sleeping through the storm, but he must have been really tired. Uh, well, it was such a violent storm that Luke wrote that they were being swamped and were in danger. In, in other words, the waves that the sea, on the Sea of Galilee were so big that they were coming over the side of the boat. The boat was in danger of, of sinking. So I, I don't think that we should ignore the fact that they were in real danger here. The disciples, this boat, were in real dangers. And the disciples were not some men who would have been terrified of the water. I mean, we saw just a, a few chapters ago in Luke, as we've been going through Luke's gospel, that several of them were fishermen. They had boats. They had sailed often. So they, they were not some people who were going to be afraid of a, a few waves, a little wind. And they had real reason to be afraid here. And so in the, the face of this danger, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Master, Master, we're going to die. In his gospel, where he records the same event, Matthew writes that they said, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. We are going to die. Well, so we see real fear in the disciples here, right? That they are afraid. But they seem to have at least some measure of faith because Jesus is, because they go to Jesus in their fear. Their first response is to go to Jesus in the middle of the danger. They seek his they seek his help. They seem to believe he can do something. In, in response to the disciples' pleas, and in the face of this violent storm, Jesus calmly got up, and the, the text says that he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, so they ceased, and there was calm. Simply by his word, Jesus calmed the storm. When he spoke, the wind and the waves they obeyed his voice. They were created by Jesus. They are sustained by Jesus. And they listened to his voice. And friends, just recognize that there is power. There is great power in the word of God. It's why we preach the Bible week after week. Because God acts powerfully through his word. But I think perhaps, for those of you who have been around the church a while, maybe for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, uh, you may have heard this story so many times that it can, we can lose our amazement at what actually happened here, that Jesus calmed the storm. Now, some of you may have technology in your homes that allows you to turn on the light by your voice, or you can uh, talk to your TV 
I know I love being able to do a voice search on my TV remote so I don't have to like painstakingly type out every single letter to find a movie that I want to watch. But despite this technology, none of you can speak a word to a storm and have it obey. All the efforts of the UAE and other nations at cloud seeding can sometimes produce a little bit of extra rain, but it does not create the clouds. No one has figured out how to stop a tornado. No one has figured out how to stop the hurricane. No one has figured out how to stop the dust storm or the wind from blowing. But Jesus did. Jesus simply spoke and, and calmed the storm. And if we, as we have seen over and over and over again in Luke's gospel, this is a demonstration of Jesus' authority. He's shown authority over demons. We're going to see that again in, in this afternoon's text in just a minute. He's shown authority and power over sickness. He has healed. And he has even raised someone from the death, demonstrating authority over death. And here we see that he has authority over all creation. Yes, Jesus is fully human. He got tired and he took a nap during his time on earth. But he is God incarnate. And this is, is what we celebrate at Christmas. That the God of the universe, the one who created you and the one who created me, took on human flesh in order to save us from our sins. Friends, Jesus was simply not simply a, a man who, who taught some moral principles or set a good example during his, his time on earth. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is the one who commands the wind, and he is the one who commands the waves. Well, after re rebuking the storm, Jesus turned to his disciples and rebuked them as well. And he asked them, where is your faith? Now he says this, even as I just mentioned, that like, personally I think the disciples had some good reason to be fearful. I think I'd be a little scared if there were waves washing over the boat and I thought I was going to sink in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So why does Jesus criticize their little faith? Well, one author put it this way. The disciples were not rebuked for having no faith at all but for lacking sufficient faith, or enough faith. They lacked sufficient faith to realize that if they were in the Lord's presence, they need not have feared. No harm could come upon them when they were in the presence of the master of nature. Now, you may or, or may not know this, but the, the most common command in all the Bible the one that God gives and is recorded in the Bible more than any other is the command, do not fear. Do not fear. And often that command in the Bible is followed with some statement like, do not fear, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. Do not fear, it is the Lord your God that goes with you. Deuteronomy 31.9. Do not fear, I will strengthen you and I will help you. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 oh, Christian, the, the reason that you are commanded, the reason the Bible commands you not to fear is because your God is the God of the universe. The God who holds all things in his hand. So that's one reason. But he's also the God who promises that he is with you. 
This is not some distant God of the universe that we just offer some praise to because he created us. No, he is the God who is with us, who fellowships with us, who loves us, who promises to be with us, the God who promises to, to help and support. A Christian, when, when God saves you, his spirit comes and dwells with you. His spirit comes and dwells in you. In, in John 14, 16, Jesus told his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Yes, Jesus was, was there with those disciples in that boat. But Christian, you have a much greater experience of God's presence than those disciples did. You have a much greater experience of God's presence than those disciples did. You have the Spirit of God indwelling you. You have the Spirit of God strengthening you, helping you to obey, comforting you, guiding you, revealing truth to you, telling you that you do not need to fear. I am with you. Now, now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that you will never find yourself in a scary situation. It does not even mean that no harm will ever come to you, at least earthly harm. But what it does mean is that no harm will come to you unless God allows it. No harm will come to you unless it is part of God's plan for you. It does mean that God will be with you in the midst of whatever pain, whatever suffering, and whatever trials that you might experience on this earth. It means that whatever happens to you on this earth, no matter what happens, your eternal destiny, your eternal destiny is secure. As the, the psalmist writes, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The answer is man can do nothing that God does not permit him to do. And neither man nor the storms nor anything else can do anything to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you need not fear. Jesus can calm real storms. He can calm the wind and the waves. But he can certainly calm and control the small storms and the circumstances of your life. He may not choose to calm them. But he is in control. One of the, the first, one of the earliest Christian martyrs was a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, I think he might actually be the first recorded Christian martyr after the, the New Testament was, was written, after the New Testament times. He was burned at the stake by the Romans. And he may have been burned at the stake for refusing to offer worship to the emperor. Well, after he was arrested, as he was set to be burned at the stake... A Roman official told Polycarp that his life would be spared if he would simply recant his faith, if he would renounce his allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what Polycarp is recorded to have said in response. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season— and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. My friends, that is, is what it looks like to fear God more than man, 
That is what it looks like to fear God more than the circumstances of your life. And Polycarp believed, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And here's a man who was about to be burned alive, who still said that God had never failed him. A man who knew that his eternal destiny was secure no matter what happened to him on this earth. I do not think the disciples were being rebuked for a lack of faith because they had some fear of this storm that had come up on the sea. I am sure Polycarp had some fear of the fire. I mean, how could you not? It was not a pleasant idea to be burned at the stake. I think the disciples were being rebuked for not having a fear of the Lord that was greater than their fear of the storm. They did not yet fully understand who Jesus was. But Jesus was busy revealing himself to them that they might believe. I mean, look at the the disciples' response to Jesus' revelation of his power and authority. Look at, at verse 25. They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. They stood in fear of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who revealed himself to them. They asked the question that so many in Luke have been asking, that we've looked at the past several weeks, this all-important question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? They did not fully understand who Jesus was yet. But their fear, their fear after Jesus calms the storm, their fear after that was not one of dread, It was not one of opposition to Jesus. It was not one that sought to flee from Jesus. It was one of awe and amazement. They knew they were standing in the presence of greatness. They continued to follow Jesus, and as as Jesus continued to reveal himself to them, they came to know him fully. They had a fear of the Lord. That takes us to the the second story from our, our text this afternoon. Uh, Jesus healing a demon-possessed man. Look at me starting in, in verse 26. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So with the the storm calmed, and Jesus and his disciples eventually make their way across the Sea of Galilee to the region of Gerasenes. Scholars are not exactly sure where this is, but it was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It seems that it was a Gentile region. Most scholars believe it was a Gentile region, something that seems to be confirmed by the fact that there are people tending herds of pigs, pigs, unclean animals for Jewish, so most likely Gentile region. Uh, As Jesus gets out on the land, this demon-possessed man comes out and meets him. 
So I, I talked about this in an earlier sermon in Luke, so I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this point here. But know that the spiritual realm is real. Demons are real spiritual. Warfare is real. If you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to the sermon on Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. But Luke tells us here that this man had been severely oppressed for a long time. He he makes clear the the power of these demons who possess the man. As we see in, in verse 29, and many times it had seized him. And though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. In addition to that, there was many of these demons there. The name was Legion. And neither the the man himself nor the townspeople who who guarded this man were able to control him or control the the demons that work within this man. But, But these facts, Luke includes these facts because they only serve to highlight Jesus' great power and Jesus' great authority as he, as he frees the man from his possession. It also highlights that Jesus is the one who could make this man clean. This man was, was naked. He was a living among the dead in tombs. Anyone familiar with Old Testament law would know that this is something that would make this man unclean. Jesus not only freed him, Jesus made him clean. Jesus was the the only one with power over these demons. As we just saw after after Jesus calmed the storm, the the disciples wonder, who then is this? Who is this man? In this text, the demons actually answer that question. When, When this man sees Jesus, the demons speaking through him say, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? These demons, these demons knew who Jesus was. And notice that these demons, they, they fear Jesus. They ask Jesus not to torment them. We see in verse 31 that they were specifically fearful of being cast into the abyss. In other words, they were, they were fearful of God's final judgment, of banishment into the abyss. And they thought Jesus may have come to enact some sort of judgment on them. And they begged him. They, they begged him and pleaded with him not to do it. But also notice that the fear that these demons had of Jesus is not, it's not the same type of fear as, as the disciples. Their, their fear of Jesus does not produce any faith. It does not come from any heart of, of faith. Though they know who Jesus is. Uh, Probably, at least from an intellectual perspective, in a greater way than even the disciples did at this point. Uh, Their fear is one of terror. To go back to the introduction to the sermon, their fear is a wrong fear that dreads, opposes, and retreats from God. I, I think most of us, at least if you're anything like me, Most of us have a hard time understanding why people would keep snakes as pets, at least poisonous snakes, like the really serious ones, or become like lion tamers or or bear trainers, like that's what they choose as their job. I don't understand those people. Uh, Most of us are scared to death to get that near to these type of animals. But not all people. Some people have such a love and respect for these animals that it overcomes their fear. 
They want to, to draw near to these animals. They're attracted to them. I don't think they lose a healthy respect for these animals or even a healthy fear. I mean, I'm sure some people are reckless. They understand the danger that they are in with these animals, but it's their, their kind of their greatness, their, their power, that is one of the things that draws them to it. Part of their, their fear of these animals is one of the things that draws them to these animals. I think that is a, an imperfect but a helpful illustration of the difference between the type of fear that the, the demons have and the type of fear that the disciples have. Uh, the demons were simply terrified. The, the demons are like most of us around the lion. It's like, well, we're just going to turn around and we're going to run as far away as we can, as fast as we can. But the disciples had a love for Jesus. They knew that he was great. They knew that he was, was mighty and fearful. They knew he had just calmed the sea and he had just calmed the wind. But they're compelled to draw near. Christians... Christians are those who want to draw near to God. And Christians are those who want to draw near to God. And you might remember that scripture reading that, that Shilpa just had from, from Deuteronomy. God spoke and Israel was too afraid to have them speak to them again. That's because they recognize what a fearful thing it is for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. Actually, kind of how Peter reacted when he had that big catch of fish a few chapters ago in Luke. You don't remember, just go read back in Luke chapter 5. Well, the Israelites were viewing God rightly. They were afraid, but they weren't exactly fleeing, not in the same way that these demons were. And brothers and sisters, now that, that Jesus has come, and Jesus has washed us with his blood, and Jesus has opened a new and living way into the presence of God, we do not even need to have that same fear and trembling as the Israelites. We can boldly draw near to the throne of grace, because Jesus, our great high priest, sits and ministers and intercedes for us in the very presence of God. So we are not separated by God from a veil like the Israelites were in the tabernacle, but we can draw near to the presence of God. And brothers and sisters, Christians are those who want to draw near. But a desire to draw near to God, a, a love for God, faith in God does not come from knowledge alone. It is more than an intellectual exercise. The demons knew who Jesus was, but they did not believe. You need a, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of the gospel to be saved. You need to know that Jesus came to earth and that he lived a perfect life of obedience and that he died a sacrificial and atoning death on the cross for your sins. You need to know that he bore the full weight of God's wrath for all who would repent of their sins and believe in him. And you need to know that Jesus is alive because he rose three days later and he is seating at the right hand of God, interceding for you. That he defeated sin and death. You need to know who Jesus is to place your faith in him. But faith is more than an intellectual exercise. Faith is more than knowledge. It is a change of affections. It's a change of what you love. It's a change of what you fear. God must change your heart. God must give you spiritual life. He must cause you to be born again and make you alive. He is the only one who can give you a proper fear of Him. He is the only one that can give you a love of Him. He is the only one who can cause you to draw near and worship instead of flee in terror. Faith is a gift of God. Jesus' encounter with these multiple demons, with this legion of demons, showed that Jesus had a clear and 
and clear power and authority over the spiritual realm. The demons knew that Jesus had the right and authority to condemn and to judge them. They begged him not to torture them. They have to ask his permission to enter the pigs. If, if you have any question about who's in charge of this scene, notice it's the demons asking Jesus for permission to do things. It is the demons begging Jesus. Well, who is, who is Jesus? He is the one with power and authority over nature and over the spiritual realm. And Jesus is God. Now, why Jesus gave these demons permission to enter the pigs, I'm not sure. Uh, it may have been to visibly demonstrate that Jesus had freed this man from the demons and to make it clear that these demons have gone from here, now they're in the pigs. It may be making a theological point. As, as one scholar put it, unclean spirits and unclean animals, the pigs, are both wiped out in one fell swoop as the pigs die. And a human being is cleansed. Whatever the reason, Jesus does give permission for these demons to enter the pigs, and it causes them to rush down the slope and die. Those who tended the pigs then go and report all that has happened to the people in the surrounding region, which brings us to verse 34. Look with me at verse 34. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them, because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. But he sent him away and said, Go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. And so these pig herders, they head out into the town and the surrounding region. They, they tell everyone what's happened. Everybody seems to want to come and see for themselves. And they find this man who had formerly been demon-possessed sitting at Jesus' feet. He is now in his right mind. He's no longer crazy. Uh, and this is a man they would have known, right? He was guarded. They had bound and shackled him. It seems like sometimes he was in the town. Sometimes he would flee out to the deserted places. But if, if that was not enough, in verse 36, we see that there were eyewitnesses who told them exactly what had happened. And so all that to say, like, all these people who came out, they know Jesus has done something miraculous here. Like, they know what has happened. And what was their response? Verse 35, they were afraid. Verse 37, they asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. Again, this is the wrong type of fear, as they want Jesus to leave them. In his, his, commenta in his commentary on Luke, Robert Stein writes this about the response of the crowds. It was clear, it was clear that just as hearing God's word is not enough, Remember, that's what we saw last time in the parable of the sower. Just hearing God's word, having seeds scattered, is not enough. So seeing God at work is also not enough. Even a great miracle cannot compel faith. Apart from a noble and good heart, God's presence produces only fear. For the believer, such fear turns to a holy awe. But to the unbelieving, it is only a fearsome dread from which they seek to rid themselves. In other words, just like some of the seeds of God's word fall on hard, unfertile ground, so do Jesus' miracles. People are met with a clear miracle, a man freed from bondage, and yet they do not believe. 
they fear. But friends, for those of you who are here and know yourself not to be a Christian, know that you cannot flee from God forever. You may not like the idea of thinking about God. You might not like the idea of thinking about one who has all authority. And if he has all authority, it certainly means he has authority over you. People try to escape from thinking about God in all sorts of ways. Now, you might not like the idea of thinking of death and final judgment. Many people don't. But one of the reasons that they don't is because it reminds them that they are one day going to die. And they are one day going to face God's judgment. You might try to forget about these things because they are unpleasant. You might try to avoid church and Christians because you don't want to be reminded of eternity or that there is a God. But friends, death comes to us all. You cannot flee forever. So let me urge you during your time on earth not to react like these crowds do, but turn in repentance. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Well, in, in contrast to the crowds, this man who had been freed from his bondage to the demons wanted to draw near to Jesus. He begged Jesus to let him follow him. And Jesus refuses his request, but instead tells him to go tell everyone what God had done for him. Which is exactly what the man did. Now Jesus may have refused his request to physically travel with him, but it is clear that this man had become a follower or a disciple of Jesus. He followed like the disciples followed. He stood amazed at the one who had all authority and had freed him from his bondage to these demons. And friends, this man is a, is a picture of what Jesus does for sinners. By his grace, he frees them from their bondage to sin. He makes them clean by washing away their guilt and their shame. He gives them the gift of faith. And he calls them to follow him. This man's changed heart and his new birth was, was evident by the fact that he joyfully went off, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. Brothers and sisters, what about you? Are you eager to proclaim all that Jesus has done for you? Are you eager to, to share the gospel with others? Are you eager to speak of the one that has freed you from your bondage to sin? Are you eager to speak of the one who has made you a child of God? Remember our text from last week. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Well, this, this man here in this text is a picture of seed falling on the good soil. It produced fruit. His light did not stay hidden, but it shone to all those who were around him. Remember the words of Polycarp. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And Polycarp's lamp did not stay hidden. It burned bright even in the midst of those faint flames that burned bright. He did not fear in the storms of life. A Christian, be encouraged today. God has freed you from your bondage to sin. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we come and we are...